We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service before the sermon, two passages were read from the Bible, Psalm 67 and Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. In the 18th century, there are a group of uh, missionaries from Moravia, and they literally sold themselves into slavery in the West Indies in order to share the gospel with the slaves there who, who had no Christian presence among them. So they voluntarily sold themselves into slavery in order to uh, form relationships with the slaves and to tell them about Christ. That was in the 18th century. And then in the 19th century, in Uganda, there were some children who were killed because of their faith in Christ. And right before they were thrown into a fire, they made this statement. They said, tell His Majesty, tell Him that He has put our bodies in the fire, but we won't be long in the fire. Soon we will be with Jesus which is much better. But ask His Majesty to repent and change His mind, or He will land in a place of eternal fire and desolation. And that was in the 19th century. In the 20th century, the Archbishop of Uganda was murdered by Idi Amin in 1977 because of his faith. And the people who were there say that the Archbishop died praying out loud for the men who were killing him. Now look in the back of your worship guide. On the back page, there's our purpose statement. We exist to embrace, embody, and spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom throughout Birmingham and the world. We've spent the last couple of weeks on the first and second verbs of that sentence. We exist to embrace and embody the gospel of Christ's kingdom. Tonight is about the third verb. We exist to spread the gospel, the gospel of Christ's kingdom throughout the world, throughout Birmingham. We, all things new, this group of people right here, we're missionaries. That's why God is starting this church. He's starting this church because He's starting a missionary organization. Now, my question for tonight is this. Why? Why is God calling us to be missionaries in this community and throughout the world? Why is spreading the gospel so important that Moravians would sell themselves into voluntary slavery? What what makes spreading Christianity so important that it justifies voluntary slavery? This, This boggles my mind. And why is it so important to spread the gospel that children would find within themselves the faith to go to their death, spreading the gospel that is leading to their death to the very king 
that is killing them. Why is spreading the gospel so important that the Archbishop of Uganda would go to preach to a mass crusade of people knowing that he's been told, if you go and do this, Idi Amin is going to kill you. And yet he does it. And sure enough, he's arrested, he's taken to the capital city, and he's murdered. Why? Why is, is this just some personality trait of a few churches here and there in Moravia and Uganda, and we hope here over the mountain? Is it because the people who are starting All Things New, is it because that we've got some sort of a evangelical activism pulsing through our veins? It, you know, some people would look at that statement, we exist to embrace, embody, and spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom, and they would say, you know, that's nothing more than colonialism. That's imperialism. That's exclusivism. You guys think you got it right and the rest of the world doesn't and aren't you arrogant to um, think that they need what you've got? What's really behind this idea of spreading the gospel of Christ's kingdom? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, to answer that question, we've got to start at the beginning. So, Turn in your Bibles to the very first page. Not the part that says, from Aunt Bertha, with lots of hugs and kisses. But the first page of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is a poetic way of saying, God made everything. It's like me saying to Janelle, I love you head to toe. We pick out terms of extreme in order to represent the whole. Uh, in the Bible, this is a technique in Hebrew poetry. So God created the heavens and the earth doesn't merely mean he made what's up there and down here. It means he made everything that exists in the world. Now look at the last verse of the chapter. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now look, this is where Christianity starts. It doesn't start proving God. It starts with a statement of faith that we believe in the beginning God made everything and He made it all good. It was just right. There was nothing bad. It was perfectly and beautifully filled with God's goodness and diversity and peace. But when we get to Genesis chapter 3, there's a catastrophe. Adam and Eve rebel against the Creator King. And the consequence, now this is what's interesting, two individuals commit a sin, but the consequence is not individual, it's universal. The whole universe is wounded, and we live in the middle of a universally wounded situation. Now, if we keep reading through Genesis and we read it like we read a good novel, which is the way you should read it, you should realize it's one plot line. If we keep reading it that way, as we walk through chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and all the way to chapter 11, we see that things just keep spiraling down into this kind of awful cesspool of brokenness and pain. Now that, Genesis 1 through 11, that is the context for understanding why spreading the gospel is our identity. 
This is the necessary context for understanding why we, a church, are God's missionary people. Okay, now with this context in place, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to do Bible study. And we're going to look at three themes that stretch across the Bible. You can also think of them as three trajectories or three arrows that start in this context and then kind of shoot out from there. And it's necessary um, to understand these three themes if we're going to know why spreading the gospel is fundamental to our identity. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start by explaining the three themes and and showing how they come up in the first part of the Bible, the part we call the Old Testament. And then we're going to go to the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, and see how Christ picks these these three themes up into himself, and then he gives them to the church. And at that point, we'll be ready to see why spreading the gospel is so critical that if we leave it out of our reason for existence we really are nothing more than a religious club, okay? So let's start with the first theme. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Here, God sets in motion His plan for making all things new. Not just this church, but as a descriptive statement of God's universal activity and His plan for creating this church. Look at Genesis 12 verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now last week I pointed out that some form of the word blessed is used five times in this passage. But tonight we need to notice that the promise begins with one man. Verse 1, And the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, But where does it end in verse 3? It doesn't end. There's a movement. Verse 1 is one man, Abraham. But where does it end in verse 3? It ends with the whole world. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is very significant when we realize it comes on the heels of chapter 10 and chapter 11. In chapter 10 of Genesis, we find what's called the Great Catalog of Nations. It's just a big, long list of the nations of the world. And then in Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of Babel, where God scatters the human race all over the world, and they form these 70 nations. So Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, they're kind of like this um, international news report. They're this huge backdrop. They're not about anybody in particular. They're about the whole world. And then suddenly, as you're reading through Genesis, like like a story, it shifts kind of perspective from a universal, worldwide, global list of nations down all the way, not to one nation, but to one single man. This man Abraham that God calls to leave his home and to move to a new country. But, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we learn that it's not because God has given up on the nations. It's it's so that 
God's blessing can go through this one man to all of the nations, to those 70 nations that are scattered over the face of the earth. In fact, God's promise to bless the world through Abraham is repeated four more times in the book of Genesis. So by the time you get to the end of Genesis, you've been told over and over and over and over again that God plans to restore to His creation the goodness that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned, and He's going to do this through one man. Now that's the first theme. Through one person, God will bless the whole world. Okay? Now let's look at the second theme. It begins in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Here we see that God gets particular again. He singles out the nation of Israel. Now these are Abraham's descendants that God promised Abraham would have back in Genesis 12. Look with me at Exodus chapter 19. Look down at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore on eagles' wings and brought you up to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now what we see here is that all the nations around the world, all of the world, belongs to God. But he singles out one nation. He singles out Israel to be what he calls his treasured possession. Why? Why does God pick one nation to have a unique relationship with? We'll go back to chapter 18 and look at verse 10. Here we have a non-Israelite. He's not a part of that nation. His name is Jethro. Look at what he says in chapter 18, verse 10. He's talking about how God rescued Israel from captivity to Egypt. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and he has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, Look at that again. Now, because of what God did with Israel taking them out of Egypt, this non-Israelite says, now because I saw that, now I know. And that's the main verb in this passage, the verb know, knowledge. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Egypt was arrogant with Israel. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Now what we see here is something that is repeated throughout the Bible. And it's this. God makes himself known to the world by saving Israel from captivity. The way God reveals Himself to the world is by saving Israel from captivity. Now, last, last night, Friday night, my family had pizza and movie night. Okay? And we watched Horton Hears a Who. Have you seen this amazing movie? Incredible. Now, it's, it's really a fascinating thing. I mean, it's the story of the Bible in some ways 
put in terms of elephants and bugs. But Horton is this giant elephant, and he's running around being goofy. Have y'all seen this? And this um, little fuzzball floats by that was caught like in the wind, and he hears something. And so he chases this fuzzball down, and what it was is that in the center of this tiny little, actually it's a piece of pollen, in the center of this piece of pollen is um, the, the country of Hootem. Um, the Who's, you know? And uh, like in the Grinch Soul Christmas, you know the Who's? Well, it's a Dr. Seuss book. And the whole story is about Horton trying to talk, an elephant, in a way that these tiny, tiny little bitty who's that are so small their whole country is buried within a, a, a kind of speck of pollen, how the who's can actually hear an elephant that they can't even see. This is the great problem of religion. If there is a God bigger than the universe, how can he speak in a way that those of us who can't see beyond the universe, we can't even see all the universe, right? How can we even hear him? Well, in the Horton hears a who, they get like this big megaphone, and Horton yells really loud, and that's how they make contact with the great elephant that holds them. But what Dr. Seuss was trying to deal with there on a child level is exactly what's going on in the book of Exodus. How will God make himself known? And the way God makes himself known is by picking one nation and doing something with that one nation. He saves them. Listen to what Spencer read to us from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us. This is the us here being an Israelite. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you. Oh God, let all the peoples praise you. In other words, look, here's an Israelite saying, God, the way you interact with us is meant to say something to the whole world about who you are. Do you want to know who God is? He's not some kind of ambiguous higher power. Don't get me wrong. God is a higher power, but he's not ambiguous. He's not some abstract cosmic force. God is particular. He has a personality. And the way he chooses to reveal himself to the universe, that's the second theme. Through one nation, God reveals himself to all nations. So we've got two themes. Through one person, God blesses the whole world. And then through one nation, God reveals himself. He makes himself known to the whole world. Now the third thing. Turn to Psalm 2. We looked at this, this psalm a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. But tonight I want to highlight part of the psalm that I didn't really address that, at that time. Look at verse 6. God speaking. As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So out of all the people in the world, God picked Abraham. And out of all the nations, God picked Israel. And out of all the places, God picked. Mount Zion, the mountain that Jerusalem sits on. That's what it says. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
This mountain, Zion, is where God's universal kingdom was going to be centered. God singled out one place from which His rule of the whole world is established. That's the third theme. Through one place, God establishes His rule of the whole world. So there's this pattern that stands out. And when we learn how to read the Bible as a single story, and we stop reading it like an encyclopedia, jumping here and there and reading this passage and thinking it's unconnected to the passage that goes 900 pages earlier. When we learn to read the Bible like one huge, sprawling story, we see that God's purpose always begins by Him singling out one person or one nation or one place. But, and this is the key, it never ends there. It never ends with the singular. In all of these occasions, there's this trajectory, this kind of force pushing out. There's an expansion which starts with the singular, always launches to the universal. We saw that it was never God's intention to bless Abraham purely for Abraham's sake. And we saw that it was never God's intention to reveal Himself to Israel only for Israel's sake. And it was never God's intention to base His kingdom in Zion only to rule that piece of real estate. God's, purposes, God's purpose in each of these choices is always an expansion to the whole world. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there's this strong expectation that God's blessing will, flo will flow from Abraham's descendants to all the families of the earth. And there's this strong expectation that the knowledge of the one true God will shine through Israel to the world. And there's this strong expectation that God's kingdom that is centered around Mount Zion will expand to include the whole universe. But that's the problem. By the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, it's nothing more than that. It's nothing more than an expectation. It's a promise. And then Jesus comes along. And listen to how the very first verse of the New Testament reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth are blessed. And in Luke chapter 2, we're told that Jesus takes on himself Israel's identity to be a light to the nations. And in his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus takes into himself the imagery of Mount Zion. And he's established as the king who will rule the entire creation. Now remember what Gates read to us, Luke 24. Listen again to verse 44 of Luke chapter 24. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is saying all of those Old Testament expectations, the expectation of blessing to the whole world, the expectation of the knowledge of God spreading to the whole world, the expectation of the rule of God spreading to the whole world, all of those expectations, Jesus is saying, they are fulfilled in me. Listen to verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. See, we're starting in this concentrated moment. Mount Zion, Jerusalem sits on Mount Zion, and we're going to go out from here. That's it again. Jesus is the way that God fulfills all of those promises. Now, look at verse 48. Now we're ready to see where the church comes in. Jesus says to the very first church, you are witnesses about this issue, of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, stay on Mount Zion, until you're clothed with power from on high. Now that's the reason why spreading the gospel causes Moravians to sell themselves into slavery and Ugandan children to walk into the fires and the Archbishop of Uganda to, to spread the gospel in the face of his own death. That's the reason why this activity of, this, of spreading the gospel justifies tonight. Justifies everything that you have gone through to be a part of this or that you're going to go through because you're a part of this. This reason for spreading the gospel that we're looking at, it gives us our purpose. Every local church is the particular community of people that God has singled out, not for our own sakes. All Things New wasn't started because of a need we have. Now that might be a, a side benefit. But it was started for us to be caught up into this incredible trajectory, this movement of God to bless the world. God never singles out some for their own sake. It's always for others. God singled us out a year ago. More, you know, God was stirring in our hearts and was working inside of us. And just over a year ago, the Brandons and the Spears, we had committed, yes, God is calling us to start a church in Birmingham. That was the Spirit of God catching us up into His movement. to bless. And look, other people have been drawn into that. Other people God is drawing in to this movement, this incredible movement. 
And, and this is exactly what has happened to us over the past year. This is exactly what is going on in the earliest church. In the early church that got started 2,000 years ago after the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, they were carrying forward this movement that we just traced through the Old Testament where God started with a single person and a single nation and a single place in order to go out to the whole universe. In fact, in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the earliest church, in the very first chapter... They're in the city of Jerusalem. But look at the very last chapter of Acts and look at the very last two verses of Acts. And it says, Paul lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. See, the book of Acts, if you just plot it out on a map, it's this movement physically, geographically, from Jerusalem. It expands to the heart of the Roman Empire, which controlled the whole known world at this point in time. And in fact, history shows us that Christianity didn't stop in Rome. It, there's this trajectory and it kept going and it, 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 it rose up from this tiny and obscure location in some rural villages around Galilee, but pretty soon, within a couple of centuries, it's dominating the major cities of Rome and even the capital, Rome itself, until the whole empire converts to Christianity. This is one of the greatest stories in history. How did Christianity dislocate paganism and become the primary religion of the Roman Empire? This is one of the great mysteries of history, unless you buy it, which I did, which we did, that there was something supernatural going on. That, that there was a divine trajectory, a wind blowing, and those early Christians just lifted up their sails and joined in that movement. And today, which started out with 12 and then 120 and then grew and grew and grew, today the best estimates indicate there are some 2 billion Christians in the world. That's one-third of our planet's population. One out of three? Christianity is booming. Now, it's true that here in America and throughout the West, it, it's stagnant. But we're not the majority. We're not the majority population of the world. And we're not even the average. This incredible growth of Christianity, it shouldn't surprise us. It was God's plan all along. We saw it all the way back in His promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham that the whole world was going to be blessed through Him. And this is our identity. All things new. We exist to participate in this movement of God, to spread the good news that God's kingdom is here. And His goodness is available to everyone. And this is what drove the Moravians to sell themselves into slavery 
and the Ugandan children to walk into the flames, and Archbishop Luwam to go to his death. They understood that God is a missionary God. That's who God is. And that we are the community from which the blessing of Abraham flows out to others. I mean, we need to look at what's going on in this room from that perspective because that's reality. That's the tr- we are the community God is birthing for His blessing to flow out of. And we are the people who have recognized that Jesus is God. And therefore, we exist to share that knowledge with others. And we experience God's kingdom, His good and gracious rule, so that we can share that kingdom with others. Now, let me wrap all of this up by pointing out one implication for us, for all things new. When we say that all things new exist to spread the gospel of God's kingdom throughout Birmingham and the world, we're saying that we're a missionary band of brothers and sisters. And that we should never forget that mission is God's work first and last. This mission that we're on, it is God's work before and after it is our work. In other words, as a church, we are committed to participate as God's people, at God's invitation, in God's mission to the world. Now part of what that means is this, that God will make more out of what we do for Him than we can make of it for ourselves. It means that what we're doing here tonight, this is fish and loaves, and God's going to take it up into His purposes And he's going to feed the masses with it. This is God's mission. It's bigger than what we are, and God will do bigger things through us than we can can do in and of ourselves. The second thing, and this is really encouraging, God will continually fix the harm that our foolishness and our failures as all things new would cause if it were not for Him. We cannot derail the kingdom of God. We can't. So think about what I've just said. God's going to do bigger and better things through us than we can do. And even if we mess up really, really bad, God's going to fix that. That's what this whole thing means. What I've been saying is that there's this huge trajectory And emperors that tried to crush Christianity, they couldn't do it. And when the church did stupid stuff like the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades, that couldn't derail the kingdom. Thomas Jefferson said at the founding of our country that that Unitarianism was going to be the religion of America. And there's hardly any Unitarians left. 
Christianity has been predicted time and time again to die out, but it is the largest religion in the world, and it's outgrowing every other religion. Can't be stopped. Because this is God's mission. God is moving. God's plan is for this universe to be renewed. And it's going to happen. This universe is going to be renewed. And we get the incredible privilege of participating with God in that work right here over the mountain. And from here, throughout the world. That's God's pattern. Start in a place with the people and move out from there. We exist, all things new, to embrace and embody and spread this good news of God's kingdom. Let's pray.